0: Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Wednesday, August 12th, 2020. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, Microsoft's dual-screen Surface Duo is here. Microsoft commits to November as a launch month for the Xbox Series X. Foxconn wants to pull back from China. Mozilla is in trouble. Silicon Valley and Kamala Harris are quite close, by the way and why I think a see-through TV is actually a pretty good idea. Thank you very much. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Out of the blue this morning, or at least I had forgotten this was coming, Microsoft launched its Surface Duo dual-screen Android phone. You can pre-order the Surface Duo starting today in the U.S. It's shipping September 10th, and it'll run you a cool $1,399. Now, you might not remember this, but we've seen this phone before. It was actually teased at that Microsoft event last October, quoting The Verge. While Microsoft had revealed the design of the Surface Duo back in October, the company had kept the specs relatively secret. The device includes two separate 5.6-inch OLED displays with a 4 by 3 aspect ratio that connect together to form a 8.1-inch overall workspace with a 3.2 aspect ratio. Unlike foldables like Samsung's Galaxy Fold, the Surface Duo is using real Gorilla Glass and the displays are designed to work in a similar way to multiple monitors on a Windows PC. One big question over the Surface Duo has been the camera. Microsoft is using an 11 megapixel camera, which will include auto modes for low light, HDR multi-frame captures, and a super zoom up to 7x. Both 4K and 1080p video recording will be supported at 30 frames and 60 frames per second with electronic image stabilization. There's only a single camera on the Surface Duo, which can be used both for video calls and as a main camera. The basic Surface Duo hardware also consists of a Qualcomm Snapdragon 855, 6GB of RAM, and up to 256GB of storage. LTE is available on T-Mobile, AT&T, and Verizon, but there's no 5G support at all. Microsoft is also including two batteries in the Surface Duo split beneath both displays. Overall, there's 3,577 mAh of capacity, which is considerably less than the 4,500 mAh found on Samsung's single-screen Note 20 Ultra, and even the 4,380 mAh on the original Galaxy Fold. Despite this, Microsoft is promising all-day battery life, which means up to 15.5 hours of local video playback, up to 10 days of standby time, and up to 27 hours of talk time. We'll need to fully test the device during our review, but the capacity here does leave a little cause for concern as the device is powering two screens, not one, end quote. Indeed, no one has gotten their hands on this bad boy yet. But Scott Stein over at CNET played around with a non-functional prototype, and here's his report on what it's like in the hand, especially in regards to that unique hinge that makes the whole thing possible. Quote, The two 5.6-inch displays combine for an effective 8.1 inches. I say effective because these two displays are still split by a little seam in the middle. Microsoft says that size is amazing for web browsing, but the clear seam in the middle means it won't be ideal for big videos necessarily. For that reason, viewing big movies isn't part of Microsoft's Duo pitch, although looking at videos on one screen while doing something on the other definitely is. One thing I find interesting about Duo is that it can stand up easily at a ton of angles. At least the non-working model I held in my hands does. It feels like a device I might use to watch something in one screen and take notes on in another. Again, kind of 3DS-like. But that really depends on whether the final product feels useful or awkward. The Surface Duo really does feel thin. The non-working device I held is thinner when opened than an iPhone 11 Pro, which is 0.32 inches or 8.1 millimeters. Closed, it's thicker, but it doesn't feel nearly as bulky as the folded-up Samsung Galaxy Fold, which is 17.1 millimeters thick when closed. And it doesn't feel like two phones glued together either. It's more book-like in its dimensions. The all-glass front and back of the Duo look sharp, but the design was chosen to improve antenna reception. Will the Duo be durable enough? The device uses Corning's Gorilla Glass 5 all over, but Microsoft wouldn't give any claims on drop-test reliability. As for the smooth, sturdy-feeling dual hinges, we're told to expect years of use, but not a specific number of folds it can survive. Quote, The Surface Duo hinge is designed and tested to function well beyond the lifespan of the product, Microsoft promises us. End quote. Yes, as always with these foldable devices, durability is the big question, especially at this price point. Microsoft is actually including a bumper case inside the box, which is pretty unusual for a phone to come packaged with a bumper, but this thing does look sexy as hell, even with the bumper on. I'd kill to get my hands on one. BT dubs more Microsoft news as the company has committed to launching the Xbox Series X in November. No actual day date yet, but... Hey, we're narrowing it down to one of 30 days, at least. There is also some bad news around Halo Infinite, though, quoting The Verge. Microsoft isn't providing a specific date for the Xbox Series X, but I have been hearing recently that the first week of November looks like it's lining up to be the launch time. That could, of course, slip further into November with the uncertainty around pandemic-related manufacturing and more. The November launch date for the Xbox Series X is being revealed today as Microsoft and 343 Industries make the difficult decision to delay Halo Infinite to 2021. Microsoft had been planning to launch the Xbox Series X and Halo Infinite simultaneously this fall. The lack of Halo Infinite does mean there's no big launch title for the Xbox Series X later this year. Microsoft is choosing to highlight Xbox Game Pass alongside more than 50 new games that are launching this year with optimizations for Xbox Series X. More than 40 existing games will also be optimized for Xbox Series X, which can include anything from hardware accelerated DirectX ray tracing, 120 FPS frame rates, faster loading times, and quick resume support, end quote. Although, as Denny the Villain pointed out on Twitter, there's another major detail that we still don't know. He tweeted, quote, Let me know when they get a price to share. To which, at Enigma905 tweeted, A price? Nah, man, they gotta keep that hype train going before they destroy us with four digits. Or might wait to see what Sony does first. To which, Mr. the Villain tweeted, Definitely feels like they're playing chicken right now. End quote. We speculated about this recently, and Darakos Roshahi just went ahead and confirmed it. The Uber CEO said that his company would likely have to shut down Uber's operations in the state of California for several months if it is forced to reclassify drivers as employees. Quoting CNBC, if the court doesn't reconsider, then in California, it's hard to believe we'll be able to switch our model to full-time employment quickly, Shahi said. Uber and rival Lyft both have about a week left to appeal a preliminary injunction granted by a California judge on Monday that will prohibit the companies from continuing to classify their drivers as independent workers. Following the order will require Uber and Lyft to provide benefits and unemployment insurance for workers. Uber and Lyft both said they would appeal the ruling during the 10-day period before it goes into effect. Rather than classify drivers as employees, Khosrow Shahi has advocated for what he calls a third way that would maintain driver's independence while allowing companies to provide some protections without risking being viewed as full-time employers. In a New York Times op-ed ahead of the court ruling, Khosrow Shahi said gig companies like Uber could pay into a fund that workers could dip into for paid time off on health care benefits based on the number of hours they work, end quote. don't usually cover these folks' earnings much either, but Foxconn reported considerably better-than-expected Q2 earnings, with its quarterly profit up 34% year-over-year, even though smartphone revenue dropped around 15%, quoting Reuters. Foxconn said the stronger-than-expected figures were mainly driven by the server and computing business – While revenue from its key consumer products, mainly smartphones, dropped more than 15% from a year earlier in the second quarter as the coronavirus pandemic hit global electronics demand. Foxconn had warned in May of bleak smartphone sales in the second quarter, citing an enormous impact on demand due to the virus, but said the work-from-home lifestyles being adopted worldwide would offer new growth opportunities. In the third quarter, Foxconn expects overall revenue to post a yearly double-digit decline and revenue from the consumer electronics division to drop about 10% from a year earlier, end quote. But what I also found interesting was this. Foxconn also said it plans to split its supply chain between the Chinese and U.S. markets because... Of course, trade ties are getting frayed between those two countries. Foxconn even went so far as to say that China's time as the workshop and factory for the world is probably coming to an end, quoting Bloomberg. Foxconn chairman Young Liu said it's gradually adding more capacity outside of China, the main base of production for gadgets from iPhones to Dell desktops and Nintendo Switches. The proportion outside the country is now at 30%, up from 25% last June. That ratio will rise as the company moves more manufacturing to Southeast Asia and other regions to avoid escalating tariffs on Chinese-made goods headed to U.S. markets, Liu told reporters after his company reported financial results. Quote, no matter if it's India, Southeast Asia, or the Americas, there will be a manufacturing ecosystem in each, Liu said, adding that while China will still play a key role in Foxconn's manufacturing empire, the country's, quote, days as the world's factory are done, end quote. End quote. in your company visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works that's k-o-l-i-d-e.com slash ride collide.com slash ride achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bike clear aligners just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking what's your secret As you know, I try to avoid wading into politics on this podcast if I can avoid it, but I thought it was worth pointing out that there are few people in Congress who have closer ties to some of the most powerful tech executives than Kamala Harris. So some in Silicon Valley are likely thrilled by Joe Biden's selection of Harris as his running mate, and I'm mentioning this because of the implications that that might have for the whole break up the big tech companies movement should Biden end up becoming president. Quoting Recode, Biden's selection of Harris, who has glad-handed with San Francisco elites for decades, as his choice for vice president is likely to usher in Silicon Valley excitement and money galore in a way that other running mates would not. For a top-of-the-ticket that has struggled until recently to excite the wealthiest and most powerful tech moguls, Harris will bring superfans from the billionaire class that will supercharge Democrats' coffers, even though it makes Biden more dependent on those big donors." On policy, the selection of the California senator offers some reassurance to the tech industry that has nervously watched the rise of the party's far left. Biden has not made tech issues a priority during the campaign, which has created uncertainty about how seriously his administration would pursue regulation or even a breakup of tech giants. With Harris... A policy pragmatist who enjoys close relationships with many leading tech executives, Biden sends another signal that his administration will not veer toward the policies pushed by those like Senator Elizabeth Warren, a vice presidential shortlister who wants to break up big tech. Harris's special touch with the ultra-rich has been integral to her political ascent in San Francisco, where she first served as district attorney before her statewide wins as attorney general and then U.S. senator. Harris was a regular presence on the city's cocktail circuit and has been profiled in society pages ever since her 30s. Her campaigns were funded by the old money families that predated the modern tech boom. But when that boom did arrive... Harris capitalized and built an orbit of new money fans that she will further bring into the Biden fold. Her biggest donors over the last two decades read like a who's who list of tech moguls. Salesforce founder Mark Benioff has told Recode that Harris is, quote, one of the highest integrity people I've ever met, end quote. Early Facebook president Sean Parker invited Harris to his wedding. Fundraisers for her presidential bid included billionaire Democratic power brokers like Reid Hoffman and John Doerr. One particularly close bond for Harris has been with Democratic mega-donor Lorreen Powell-Jobs, the billionaire philanthropist and wife of the late Steve Jobs. When Powell-Jobs appeared on stage to speak at the annual Code Conference in 2017, she brought Harris along with her. Harris also has connections at Facebook, a company at the burning core of Democrats' ire these days. She has enjoyed a particularly cozy relationship with Facebook's number two, Sheryl Sandberg, over the years, helping Sandberg market her book, Lean In. Sandberg also sent her a congratulatory note when she won her Senate seat in 2016, as the Huffington Post detailed. But all these ties will prove double-edged in a Democratic party that has grown concerned about the wealth accumulated by these billionaires and their political influence. The same goes for their tech companies, which are now the subject of antitrust scrutiny and a broader rethink of Silicon Valley's corporate power. Roger McNamee, a Silicon Valley investor who has expressed concerns about Biden listening too much to tech billionaires, said Harris could pull off a Nixon to China moment. In other words, only someone like her could push through certain regulations because of her credibility with the tech community." End quote. I worry for Mozilla, like seriously, I worry that Mozilla might not be long for this world. Mozilla announced yesterday that it plans to lay off around two hundred and fifty employees or about a quarter of the company, and is closing the company's current operations center completely. That center is in Taipei, Taiwan. Quote We need to reduce the size of our workforce, Mozilla Corporation CEO Mitchell Baker wrote in an email sent on Tuesday. This is hard to internalize and I desperately wish there was some other way to set. Mozilla up for success in building a better internet. I desperately wish that all those who chose Mozilla as an employer could stay as long as interests and skills connect. Unfortunately, we can't make that happen today. Our pre-COVID plan is no longer workable. We have talked about the need for change, including the likelihood of layoffs, since the spring. Today, these changes become real, Baker added in the email, end quote. Baker writes the Firefox organization will focus on core browser growth and reduce investment in areas such as developer tools, internal tooling, and platform feature development. The email also mentions the organization's recent focus on developing more revenue-generating products such as its new VPN, end quote. Apparently, the layoffs are coming in the Servo and Threat Management teams. And a timely reminder that 90% of Mozilla's budget comes from a single contract contract for search engine preference, which it has with Google. If Google were to ever walk away from that contract, Mozilla would cease to exist almost immediately. As Bozidar Batsov tweeted, I have a feeling we'll be getting more bad news from Mozilla in the months to come, as the messaging doesn't sound optimistic at all. I guess Google's Chrome finally won, end quote. Finally today, Xiaomi has revealed a transparent 55-inch flat-screen TV. Transparent as in, you can see what's on the other side of it. An OLED TV that is also see-through. It's going on sale in China on August 16th for $7,200. Quoting first from CNET, When me TV Lux OLED transparent edition is turned off, it looks like a mirror glass display the company said in a release. The pictures it displays seem to be floating in the air merging the virtual and the real to bring an unprecedented visual experience End quote. But how do it work? Quoting The Verge This TV is able to be transparent partly due to the fact that Xiaomi put all of the guts into its circular base instead of behind the display. But the more magical part of how it actually made a see-through OLED screen comes down to utilizing transparent OLED technology. As mentioned in the Universal Display Corporation's site that breaks down all of the specs, ToeLed screens use transparent components all the way through the stack that makes up the screen and with no need for backlighting each diode emits its own light hence the acronym images can look like they're floating most other oled screens use a reflective cathode layer which prevents you from seeing through it even if its back was removed the result is a 55 inch transparent tv that quote looks like a mirror glass display when it's off powered on it has 120 hertz refresh rate one millisecond response time 150,000 by 1 contrast ratio, and it has 93% of the DCI-P3 color profile, end quote. So there's been a lot of snark online about how this is just another TV gimmick that we don't need, like that TV that rolls into its base when not in use, but I gotta say, I'm in favor of this sort of thing. Like, TVs are big, giant monoliths from 2001-style barriers that crowd out any sense of space and flow in any room they're in. Anything you could do to reduce a TV's feng shui footprint, even if it's just psychological, would be more than welcome to me. I know you could mount it on your wall, of course, but even then, when it's not on, it's a real estate hog on your wall. What if you could mount this thing to your wall and put some art behind it? I don't know. All I'm saying is I like this idea. Wouldn't mind if this became standard for all TVs. A lot of you seem to find that whole Descript overdub vocal deepfake experiment yesterday as interesting as I did, but some of you wondered why I didn't just surprise you with it and see how long it took you to notice the difference. Well, I do want to do that, but I want to train the whole program more on my voice first to get the quality as close to perfect as we can. I've actually been in touch with the founder of Descript, Andrew Mason, who founded Groupon as well back in the day, by the way, and he's agreed to set us up so I can upload some of the hours of audio from this very podcast to further train the AI on. Should be a few days to get that all set up, and then I have to actually upload the audio without any music in the background, which means I'll have to go back into some old episodes and just grab the segments and cut them off before the bumpers start. That will take time, of course, so if anyone out there felt like stringing together a few hours of audio from old shows, I wouldn't be opposed. I'll give you a shout-out and let you come on the show to promote whatever you want, or else we will just have to wait for me to find the time to do it myself. But one day, once I feel like we've trained the system more adequately, I promise I will slip a robo-segment into an episode without telling you, and we'll see who notices. Talk to you tomorrow.